Hello and welcome to Women in Confidence with me, Vanessa Murphy, HR expert, confidence coach, and now podcaster. This podcast discusses all things to do with confidence in life and in work. And this is a podcast for women who want to learn what confidence is, how to obtain it, and how to maintain it, and learn how confidence can help you grow and flourish. Every week, I introduce you to amazing women who have interesting stories to tell about confidence. Through their stories, insights, hints and tips, you realise that a lack of self-belief or low self-esteem is common and also very human. But by listening to them, you'll take away what they have done to show up confidently on the inside as well as on the outside. Hello and welcome to season four of Women in Confidence. If you're a regular listener, thank you very much for following me and for being with me along the way. And also, if you are a new listener, welcome. Nice to have you with me. So my guest this week is Tanya Vasalo, and she's the founder of The Courage to Be Happy, which is a community of independent, ambitious women entrepreneurs who want to become financially empowered so they don't have to depend on anyone else. Since the launch of her business, she has been able to achieve six-figure revenue by her fourth year and only working 20 hours a week. Tanya is on a mission to support, inspire and teach all ambitious women entrepreneurs the mindset, tools and strategy to grow their money from an easy, practical and spiritual perspective. This way they can break away from financial dependence and instead create an empowered life of freedom. All right, Tanya, hello and welcome to Women in Confidence. Thank you for being here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks for being on the show. We're going to go straight into it. And the one question I always ask my guests is, what does having confidence mean to you? Hmm. Well, confidence to me is understanding who you are and trusting that you have the answers within you, just like from an innate place, like from an intuitive place. And if you don't have those answers, um, that you're resourceful enough to come up with those answers. So it's, it's it kind of like that you can, you can acquire the knowledge or the answers in some way or other, you know, because I might not feel confident, I don't know, speaking Chinese, but I might feel very confident, you know, with women related topics. I know that even though I don't speak that language, that I have the ability and that I have the resourcefulness and that I have the courage if that's what I want to do to be able to acquire those answers and, and that knowledge and that education. So I guess it encompasses trust, intuition, courage and resourcefulness. I don't know if that encompasses everything for confidence. It's an interesting topic. So I'm going to pick up two of those. So you mentioned courage and resourcefulness. I mean, would you say that that's who you are? You've got courage and you are a resourceful person. Yeah, I definitely, I feel confident in that answer. Absolutely. Yes, (laughs) I do feel like things show up for me and they can be very scary and I still do them no matter what, you know, it's like, okay, just just do it and see what the next step is. And then the next step gets revealed. And then you, you get scared again. There's the fear, the anxiety, and then you take the next step and then the next answer is revealed. And regarding resourcefulness, I do feel like it's a muscle that I've built throughout the years. And I have several different examples of it. Figuring, you know, it's like, there's always an answer and I might not know the answer, but I know I can 
talk to the right person, ask the right questions or ask the right people and the answers all end up, you know, coming to me, like they're brought to me one way or another. And being courageous, do you feel like you've been courageous all your life? Hmm. I want to say in these, my adulthood, yes. And I'm trying to go back even further, like teenage years. And yes, yes, I think I've always been courageous. Like I'm, I'm remembering a story of like my dad taking me, he likes telling this, of taking me to on a business trip. And I happened to be at the hotel with him while he was in his conference meetings or whatever. And I was in the room at age five and he's like, just stay here and you can order room service if you want. And he, he laughs about the fact that I was so like, brave at age five, staying in the room alone and ordering room service or whatever, which is funny. He tells it in just a funny way. So I'm going back and I'm like, wow, yeah, I guess I don't know how many five-year-olds would be like, oh my God, don't leave me by myself or whatever. So I think, yeah, that that's always been there for me in one way or another. You also mentioned that as part of being courageous is that you feel a fear, but you will go on and and do it whatever it is anyway. When you talk about fear, how does that show up for you? To me, fear is almost like excitement in disguise somehow. You know, it's like you're, it's the same feeling in the body. Like I, for some people, they might blush. For me, it's, I get sweaty. My palms get sweaty. My feet get sweaty. I might get even a little bit shaky in the hands. I bring it back to reminding myself that it is, excitement at the same time. Like I have two choices. I can choose. It's scary. Oh my God. It's scary. It's scary. It's scary. I don't want to do it. Or this is exciting. And it's the same feeling. It feels like it's scary, but it really is excitement. And there's going to be some type of reward at the other side. And usually there's, I always say that the universe favors the brave and you take that action. And then on the other side of that breakthrough is that reward of like, oh my God, I did it, you know, and I never thought in a million years that I'd be able to do that. I love that you are saying, you know, if you, you can convince your brain or you have a path, you can go down, it's either it is fear and that's how your, your body reacts to it, or you can decide this is exciting and then you get a different reaction or you get a different response perhaps. And I was watching a TED talk, I think a couple of days ago, it had a very similar message is that you know, the actual sort of, I guess, the chemical movement in your body is the same, whether it's a genuine fear or it's an excitement. And it's about your brain telling you which one it is. And I thought that was really interesting that actually we we can control the response. And in your case, you've chosen that it it's not really a fear, it's an excitement. And that's how I try and take it that way, because I, I do feel like, I mean, like one of the big biggest fears that's out there is public speaking. Like, let's, let's just take that one, for example. And I love speaking in public. Like I've done many, you know, speaking engagements, you know, on stages, big stages, smaller stages. And there's always a fear there when you're about to get on stage. It's, it's like that, that body reaction, like you're saying, you know, it's like the sweat, your hands might be a little bit shaky. I tend to start speaking really fast at first, you know, like in those first 10 seconds, maybe, but then you start learning some techniques about, you know, like, okay, how can I control that? What can I do for the sweaty hands? What can I do for, uh, you know, grounding myself? So take a breath or something. So there's certain techniques that you can learn with that, but going back to that, 
I'm not like a Tony Robbins or, a, you know, like all these famous speakers, but I can guarantee you that they still, they still feel that fear, bigger or smaller levels, and they just know how to manage it better, you know, like, because through experience and through doing this over and over and over, it's like, okay, it's there. Let's just do what we have to do. It's okay. You know, there's just no way around it. You know, it's, it's going to show up because it's your body, it's your brain, actually, your reptilian brain is trying to keep you safe. It's like, oh, there's change. Something big is happening. I don't like change. Whether that changes, it's the tiger in the jungle, which is where it comes from. You know, the reptilian brain has that reaction of you. Ha I have to protect you. There's this change. You have to either start running or there's change because I have to get on a stage and speak right now, or I have to, I don't know, jump out of our plane, you know, because I'm doing skydiving, whatever it is that that fear is there. Your brain's job is to keep you safe. And so it, it sends all those reactions of fear. But if you can shift it and just turn it into, oh, wait, I'm feeling the fear reaction, but I know it's, I can turn it into excitement. Let's just turn it into excitement. I've always sort of been told that. The reptilian, so you're right, that reptilian brain is keeping you alive and, and surviving in, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, but it still exists. But I heard that it, it can take about 10 seconds for your, I don't know what the part of the brain is that talk, that is very rational. It takes about 10 seconds for that to sort of override the reptilian brain. And you mentioning, you know, just taking a deep breath and grounding yourself whilst you're public speaking, for example, gives you that 10 seconds for your rational brain to kick in and then you, mm. you you know that excitement and and the confident you comes forward rather than the nervous sweaty palms you i mean what is that do you think that's true it takes about 10 seconds i i don't i've never measured it i don't know like the exact numbers but it sounds like it could be but i'm sure even if it were 10 seconds or 20 or five five might seem like three minutes <laughs> or like an eternity to you the best thing to do is that is figuring out like what are your best coping mechanisms and and understanding it for that period of time. It's like, okay, I know I'm gonna go through that. And sometimes it can last more than 10 seconds. Like I remember a client, now it's coming to mind, that she was driving a car that was falling apart basically. I mean, it was like a, a life hazard for her. And she did not want to buy a new car because a she was scared so the fear was i'm not going to be able to afford this I, I i'm not going to be able to make the monthly payments uh so that was the biggest fear so that wasn't a 10 second lasting fear that was more of like a month i remember it took her about a month you know we were working through that because there were several layers to that fear it was I don't want to go to the car dealership. They're going to take advantage of a woman. And I just recently got divorced, you know, so we had to overcome that fear. Like what things do we put in place to help her get over that? So she ended up going with another friend that knew about cars and it was another woman. Then she had the fear once she did sign the papers and she had to make the first couple payments. I, okay. I made it this month, but will I be able to make it the next month? And then the third month came around and will I have money for the third month? And now I'm happy to say it's been over three years and she's been making her car payments fine, but that fear did last for a couple months for her, you know? So whether it's a 10 second, because you're getting up into public speaking, or it's, I have to buy a car and I feel insecure because I've never done this in my life, you know, and I just recently got divorced and my husband's the one that used to do it. 
It's what things can I put in place to kind of suppress that fear to calm that reptilian brain and say, it's okay, it's okay, it's just change. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting subject. Like you're saying, like, what's that time frame, And what do I do during that time frame to calm yeah. it down? Because it's, it's going to show up. There's it will. And 10 seconds, like you said, it feels like a lifetime. <laughs> it's not, but it does feel like a very long time. Well, I've been talking about your client then. It's a really nice, good, it's a good segue into what you do and your business. And one of the reasons why we're talking today. So um, tell everybody then what you do and what's your main business. So, yeah, the, I'm the founder of The Courage to Be Happy. It started out where I was teaching women about branding. That was my background. I used to be an art director in New York City, big agencies, working for multi-million dollar accounts like Starbucks and Samsung and Nabisco. But it just it wasn't the right thing. It was problem solving for these big, huge corporations, and it didn't align with my values. And then I launched the courage to be happy, you know, after having run a business with my husband, which was kind of like feast and famine for us because we really didn't understand what it entailed to run a business, what it meant to do sales. He's a creative tool. And so here we have two creatives trying to figure out how to run a business. So I launched The Courage to Be Happy, and I have a ton of degrees and certifications. I've worked as a professional photographer. I've worked as an art director. I was certified as a life coach in the early 2000s before anyone was a life coach. That You know, like the list goes on and on. And I was like, well, what can I do for, like, how can I blend this multi-passion into something specific and who do I want to serve? So I started working with women, teaching them about branding, since that's what I knew from the advertising world. As soon as I launched my business and I started following my own uh, mentors and teachers and putting the right systems in place and learning what it really means to run a business... And within four years, only working 20 hours a week, I was able to get to the six-figure revenue. A lot of women around me were like, well, what are you doing? How are you doing that? You know, only working 20 hours a week. So then I started teaching about business and business strategies and how to to optimize that and how to take your gift and your passion and turn it into a business and monetize it. And then from there in that journey... I realized that one of the main things is our money mindset. It doesn't matter how much strategy you put in place and tactics and all these tools. I was realizing with the women that I was working, as well as with colleagues, even for myself, I need to tackle my money mindset first, you know, and I started following other teachers within the financial world and uh, doing all these other things simultaneously. And so now uh, within my business, I have a year-long program where we teach once a week, we teach business strategies and once, I mean, once a month we do uh, business strategies and once a month we do money mindset. And I became fascinated with that because I feel like as women, we have so much programming into us about money and abundance and and we need to just deprogram all that. In my opinion, before you even want to do anything with business and strategy, you need to work on that aspect. It's the business won't work out. It'll, it'll just fail or it'll drag out really long, you know, if you don't deal with those things. So it's funny because if you would have told me six, five, six years ago that I would be teaching about business or money, I would have laughed at you because I considered myself a creative, you know, <laughs> like I was, you know, that's not my thing. 
And now it's a fascinating topic to me, especially because it's so taboo, you know, and I love talking about money and I love talking about business strategies with other women too. So that's a little bit of where I'm at right now and where the path has taken me. Do you think then that the mindset, money mindset is different between the genders? Because you talked about a lot women have a lot of programming. So what's different for a woman then and her money mindset? I do think it's different. I do also believe that we all come with programming because here's how it works. Our conscious mind does not get developed until age six, seven, or eight. That's what the psychologists say. So everything that you are experiencing, everything that you are getting in through all your senses, what you see, what you hear from ages zero to seven, all those beliefs are being put into your subconscious mind. So obviously all of us have programming that's been passed down to us from our parents, usually from our parents or caretakers, because those are the ones that are most immediate to us, our teachers, our religious beliefs, you know, whether you go to church, synagogue, you know, wherever you're going, there's certain beliefs that are being given to you. The culture, the media, you know, I was born and raised in Spain. That's a very different message that's being given to us about everything. You know, it could be about your culture, about religion, about gender, about money, about health. No one really teaches us how to detangle that or question it as we grow up. And so what happens is with money programming, because that's what we're focused on right now, you've been programmed with all these beliefs from age zero to seven. If you haven't worked on it, if you haven't detangled it, if you haven't questioned it, because the majority of us as adults just go around thinking and believing what we believe, and we're very righteous about it because that's what's been passed down to us. The invitation is to really question your beliefs, question your beliefs of like, well, why do we have to eat at a certain time? Why do we have to, you know, do particular things with our health? Why do we believe in this God? Why did, you know, like, did I ever question that? Or is that just because my whole family and my whole lineage believed in that God? Why do we do certain traditions? What? And so it's the same thing with money. And when it comes to women and men, yes, I think there is distinctions. For me, it became very clear uh, growing up in Spain at the end of uh, dictatorship because Franco died in mid-70s and we still didn't get into like a socialist um, country until the 80s. So we're still trying to figure everything out. And the unspoken message growing up in Spain was that boys had it better. You know, that boys had more advantages, boys were given better things, boys were more important. And now when I think about all this, it it makes total sense that when my sister was born, my parents thought that she was going to be a boy and it turned out she wasn't. At age three already, I mean, this is what's fascinating. I interpret that moment as, oh, my dad's disappointed you know, he wanted a boy. So let me act like a boy, you know, like, let me be loved. Let me give him what he wants. So I started acting like a boy from age three on up until like my teenage years. And then it was added to, you know, not only because I wanted to please my dad and the love, but you start learning from that unspoken language of, oh, they have it better. You know, look, look at that boy has that advantage. And so there are certain programmings. I mean, for me, one of the programmings that I realized growing up in Spain was that 
again, it was never said directly, but it was this kind of underlying, and, and maybe it was the same for you, you know, in, in, in your country, you know, like everyone has different perspectives, you know, again, the culture, your own family, because I could speak with other Spanish women that didn't have this same programming or upbringing, but for me in particular was, don't worry, you're always going to be taken care of by a man financially. So you'll grow up and you'll find the right man. You'll marry a man and still take care of you financially. And if you're not lucky enough to find a man that's to marry, then don't worry, your brother will take care of you. If you don't have a brother, then your dad will take care of you. And if your dad's not in the picture anymore, it'll be an uncle. You know, like that was, and maybe it was also because it was a very patriarchal uh, family for me. My dad's seven brothers and one sister, and she's the youngest. So there was always this message of the men in my life will take care of me. And it wasn't until I started realizing that, that it was like, well, wait a minute. No, you know, like I can be as successful as a man. I need to learn about finances. I mean, if you really look at statistics with women, it really saddens me because women were not aware of we're going to have to deal with finances at some point in our life. We can't keep abdicating this power to other people. I don't care if it's your spouse. I don't care if it's a financial advisor. You need to learn about it because part of the programming is don't worry. Someone else will take care of you. Women aren't good with numbers. Women are, that's not a woman's thing. A man is a financial plan, you know? And so it's all this message that's been given to us that we're not good enough. This is not something we need to concern ourselves. We just need to take care of the men in our lives. They'll take care of us in exchange. And it's a little bit unfair of a programming for women as well as for men, you know, because some men might not want to do, why do they have to carry all the burden of having to do all this for the women, you know? So Yes, I do believe that there's still major differences in programming for women and men. I think men also have certain programmings that overlap with women, but I think we carry even more just because of living in a patriarchal society and and it's it is a pretty much in general a patriarchal world. You know, there might be some exceptions of certain cultures, but yes, that was a long extended uh answer to that one, Vanessa, but I become very passionate about <laughs> so in terms of money mindset and this programming which you know is layers and layers and years and years potentially through your parents through you know peers families around whatever where do you start with your clients to unpack some of that and to perhaps take the noise and the sting out of some of that programming where do you start the first place is, is is awareness, is starting to realize it. Like maybe you listen to like this podcast and you're like, oh my God, yes, I never really questioned my belief of time, of health, of money, of religion. The, the invitation is to come to it from curiosity and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not bad. I'm not to start taking away that guilt, that shame. It's just becoming aware and being curious and saying, yeah, where did that belief come from? And then I start going back into our past. You really have to go back into your past and, and see, you know, what were your first money experiences? What were the messages that you were given, you know, from that age zero to seven? And kind of go down memory lane and start picking at those things, you know, and saying, oh, yeah. 
I remember my parents got divorced because they were always arguing about money. What did I make that mean? Here's the bottom line is money to me has no meaning. It really doesn't. It's not good and it's not bad. But one of the programming says money is evil or people with money are corrupt or money is bad. You know, like that is a big, big money block that I see for a lot of people. And, but you have to keep reminding yourself that money is not good or bad. It's the meaning you give it. So if your parents are constantly arguing and they end up divorcing and their arguments are always about money, then you have to question that and say, wow, no wonder I'm constantly thinking the money's bad. I, I can't hold on to it because I've always thought that money is evil, money is bad. So why would I hold on to money? You know, as soon as I make it, and I've seen this with six, seven figure entrepreneurs making a ton of money, but they lose it right away. Or maybe someone inherits a ton of money and they just either spend it, give it away because they don't know, they've never done this work. So you have to start with curiosity. You have to be non-critical and judgmental of yourself. You know, just be curious and say, wow, that was passed down to me. And it usually gets passed down in three forms. It's either uh, verbal, you know, like they said to you, money doesn't grow on trees. People with money are evil. Look at the neighbors. They are always flashing their cars or the new item that they bought, you know, so there's verbal. What, what did you hear as you were growing up? The second one is modeling. You start modeling what your parents or those close to you, your teachers, your caretakers, your, your church, your everything, the culture, you know, so you start modeling what everyone else did around you. And the third one is your experiences. You know, your experiences are unique to you. And so you're going to make them mean something. So you want to become really aware of these things. But it really is an exercise. The, the place to start is going into your past. Because most likely, so you gave it meaning between the age of zero to seven. And maybe one of the meanings that you gave it, one of the money blocks you have is uh, you have to work hard for money. You know, and so then from age seven and on, you start looking for evidence of why you have to work hard for money. So something will happen and you'll get paid for it, but you'll be like, oh man, I really worked hard for that. You know, I worked a whole weekend to just make a hundred bucks or whatever. And so it's like, see, it's, it, and it's not that you're doing it consciously. All of this is happening in your subconscious mind. So it really, the most important place to start is just awareness and curiosity and see what is my money story? What has been passed down to me through my ancestors? You know, did your parents or grandparents grow up in the depression or did they grow up, my grandmother grew up in uh, the tail end with the civil war, you know, like in Spain. So that's a very different mindset of what she carries, you know, like hoard on to things, hold on to them because you never know if I'm going to have food to feed my kids, you know, like, and that gets, that gets ingrained and imprinted in yourselves. You know, it, it just, you really have to work at it. And so that you can break those patterns, those generational patterns, and it doesn't get passed on to the next generation. And I think things will still seep through because even all the work that I've done, and I'm trying to be really conscious with my own daughter, who's now eight, eight nine, she just turned nine, of being very careful what I say. I might be tired and she's like begging and so persistent, like, can we get this? Can we get that? I really want this at the store. And I'm like, no, we're not, that's too expensive. But then I have to catch myself and be like, 
well, what message is that sending? Is that going to send like a lack? And, and there will be stuff. I know she'll either end up in, in therapy or she'll tell me <laughs> 20 years from now, you know, like you kept saying this or this other time, you know, this experience that we had, but that's for her to detangle by that point. Hopefully we're just making the next generation better and better, but it really starts with us and, and trying to detangle and, and look into our past, go into that, have awareness, have curiosity and have compassion for yourself as well as for your loved ones, you know, and whoever you grew up with, you know, whether it was your parents or your teachers that passed that down to you, because they, I'm a big believer and it's not that it justifies bad behavior, but whatever they did, they did the best they could with the knowledge that they had. And we have to understand that they had their own experiences. But if we can do that for ourselves, instead of thinking of like our own, you know, ancestors, like what kind of things am I doing that I could shift a little bit so it doesn't get passed on to the next generation? So, One yeah. of the things uh, I did when I started to become curious about my own money mindset was literally just write down all the things I can remember about money from, you know, all the pe- sort of people who were influencing my life around that time. And, and actually, and I keep adding to it because things pop up. And even when you were talking, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember my grandfather sort of sneaking a pound. I think it was a pound. It might have even been less than like 20 pence or something to my hands. So my grandma wouldn't see it. You know, just stuff like that keeps cropping up. And I write it all down and I just think, what does this, what does this mean? And how is this showing up in my life so that I don't pass it on to my kids? One thing I deliberately do now is when my kids say, oh, you know, my mate has got the latest iPad or the latest iPhone or, you know, which costs thousands and thousands. I genuinely say, well, that's great. You should, you know, celebrate that they've got these amazing things. So I've shifted my what I would so like, you know, 20 years ago, I'd have been like, oh, I'm so jealous. They've got the latest this, this and this. Whereas I now say to my kids, actually, that's really great. You know, that's amazing that they've got that. And you should celebrate that with them and and be great, you know, thankful that they've got these things. And so it is really deliberately shifting that language. And so now as a result of doing that, I genuinely don't feel jealousy for people's money. I I just don't have that. Oh, look what they've got. If you make choices in your life, you know, you choose to do X, Y, and Z, then you can have the rewards. And it's not through hard work. That's one thing I'm saying. It's not about them working harder or longer or whatever. People have choices and they can they can buy things and they can have lovely holidays, whatever. But they're seeing now that it's their choice to do that. And I think that's where I'm empowering mm-hmm. them. It's people can choose to either have or have not. And when if they have, they can choose what to do with it. And it's entirely them. And you should celebrate their choices. That's wonderful. That's so great that you're doing that and your level of awareness and shifting it for them. Another thing that I do with my daughter, because I think kids are such great teachers with this subject for those of us that choose to start paying attention to how, how are we handling it? When my daughter goes into the, the same thing, you know, she's at a, she's in a private school here. And so of course there's the comparison and -and so-and-so has this and that. And there's a part of you that's like, oh, I want to get it for another part of me is like, I've chosen now. I'm like, well, you, if that's what you really want, how are you going to make the money for it? You know, like, and that's where you're teaching them resourcefulness, confidence, you know, so her big dream now is to have a horse. 
And so I was like, and she's like, how much money would it cost to have a horse? And I'm like, so you go down the whole, you play with them with that idea. And so I'll, I'll say like, well, the horse in itself might be two, $3,000. I have no idea how much a horse is, but, but then you have to think about feeding the horse and housing the horse and do 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 with the horse. And so you, you tell her like the realities of everything. Mm -hmm. She's like, so then I guess I need $40,000 forces her to be creative. So she's like, no, I need to buy land because I'm going to build the stables to house the horse. And I'm like, wow, I never would have thought of it that way, you know? And so it creates this back and forth of them trying to be resourceful of how they can acquire that thing that they truly want. And then to ask themselves the question, do I truly want that? Because I also talked to my daughter about investing, you know, I'm like, there's three different ways and this is so classic type of and cliche type of thing. But I'm like, as you're getting money, you know, break it down into three piles. I like, you know, put some into, she's a big animal advocate. So I'm like, put some money for your animals, put some money for your play or to buy whatever you want to buy and put some money where you put it into the bank and it grows. Like if you leave it there, it, I don't know what concept she has of a bank. I think she thinks of it like a money tree, you know, like <laughs> you just put the money there and it just multiplies itself. It'll be funny to talk to her when she becomes older of like this idea. I think planting those seeds already at a young age with kids, whether it's, you know, nine, 10, seven teenagers, where they have an option, you know, like, oh, do I want the immediate impulse and immediate gratification of getting the latest iPhone? Or do I stick with the one I have, but I'm going to take a little bit of this other money and I want to learn how can I multiply it? How can I make that money grow? And, and putting that concept into kids' heads, you know, because that was never explained to me as a kid, you know, like I never understood, I never really understood investing and these kind of things until couple of years ago, really, really, you know, in this last decade, I think it's important to have those conversations with your kids. And I think that's great that you're empowering them that way, you know, and not falling for the, oh my God, how do we tackle this comparison thing? And that bit about you were saying about becoming educated about money and we're doing it with our kids. I'm sure there are plenty of women who even in the sort of late forties, uh, are educating themselves about that and and compounding and pensions you know that becomes a little bit more into focus when you get a bit older is it 401k in, in america i think 401k here yeah. yeah you know the education should never never stop and i suppose it comes back to some of the stuff you do about money mindset is that if you've never had conversations about money you have as a woman you've never had being educated about it and then suddenly you get to your whatever stage in life and you're now having to learn it, it, it should, it should start when it starts essentially, shouldn't it? If you're not getting it from your parents or from your school, you need to educate yourself at some point about your I, I am a big believer of that, Vanessa. Thank you for pointing that out because that's, that's the starting point. And I think that's part of the programming where we didn't want women to become empowered. So patriarchy just kind of, you know, like you don't need to learn about stuff. Don't worry. The men will take care of it. And so that's where these thoughts and these beliefs of I'm not good with money. I'm not good with numbers. I don't understand the financial jargon. I made that mistake. You know, when I rolled over here in the States, it's a 401k your pension plan. When you work in corporate, I went into a city bank in New York city. I will never forget. And they assigned me whatever agent was there who I gave my money to 
because we had to roll this over. An educated woman, postgraduate degrees, you know, like I mentioned before, I have all these certifications. I did not know what questions to ask. I felt stupid. I didn't want to look stupid. So let me just keep quiet. And that way I don't look stupid. That mistake of staying quiet, of not educating myself, of not wanting to learn it because I didn't understand the jargon. He put it all into these mutual funds that lost me money in the four years that I went back to Spain. And it wasn't until I came back to the U.S. that my husband recommended to want to learn about finances. But statistically, it's proven that women are better investors than men. We are much better at investing than men are. So if we can get ourselves educated and empowered. But anyway, when I came back, my husband recommended contacting his family financial advisor and learn about investing in the stock market. And that scared the crap out of me, Vanessa, because again, it was ignorant. He's like, just buy four or five stocks with dividends. And I'm like, what's a dividend? Like, And I, I could ask him because I didn't feel like I felt comfortable with him. I'm like, how am I going to go to a financial advisor? And here I am showing off like I'm an independent woman and I have this level of expertise and knowledge, but I don't know what a freaking dividend is and how am I going to ask him? So that goes back down to having courage, up into the fear and educate yourself and surround yourself with people where you feel safe talking about these things. Like I felt safe talking to my husband. He explained what that was. So that gave me the, the the confidence to ask the financial advisor for a list with uh, dividends. Then I made my picks and then I saw my money grow and then I'm feeling all empowered. You know, so that's where it all starts is getting educated. And if all the financial jargon is too much for you, you know, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, well, where do I even start? Start with books or podcasts like this that are a little bit more palatable. Like we're not talking about index funds and we're not talking about percentage and ROIs and dividends and, you know, where you're like, oh my God, get me off of here. Start in places where you're like, wow, there's other women that are feeling the same thing I am because you said something really important. It's better to start getting educated and get curious now than when a tragedy happens because 90% of women are going to have to deal with their finances at some point of their life because one 50% of marriages end up in divorce. And if you are one of the luckies that stays in the marriage, 80% of women will outlive their spouses. 80%, I repeat, you know, so you are going to have to handle finances at some point. So why not learn it while you're in a good state of mind and surrounding yourself with the right communities, places where you feel safe. Money is just such a taboo and isolating subject. So I really do encourage, listen to these kind of podcasts, like with yourself, Vanessa, and and talking, talking with other women, you know, like that's one of the things I feel like women, we love talking, <laughs> but instead of gossiping, let's talk about things that are important. Like, what are you investing in? What was the first time that you invested? What kind of money are, were you spending your money? What are you, you know, like these kind of conversations are a lot more exciting to me. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast the other day. I can't remember what it's called now. Something like little shrimp or something really odd. And the, the two women on it were talking about what they spend their money on. And I mean, we're talking big money. So one of the, the, the guests was talking, you know, she just bought an apartment in New York or something, you know, like big, big money. But it was just such a, for me, I was a bit of a like, oh, wow, I'm a bit taken aback because 
I don't think I've really listened to those conversations when somebody's like, I've just bought a three, four million dollar apartment. But those are the sort of things that are accessible. And I can certainly, I can't remember the name of it, but there's, you know, I can signpost it in the notes. Listen to those where women are talking about spending three, four million dollars on things and why they chose to do it and why they're investing. There's, there's plenty out there for sure. There's plenty out there. Look, Tanya, we've been talking now for about actually quite a while, about 45 minutes, nearly 50 minutes. So we are going to have to bring this to a close. So what's your one piece of advice for women who are listening and they just want to get confident either as a person or around their money mindset? I think you hit it on the nail. It's start being curious. So be open to it. Start getting curious about your how you interact, what are your beliefs with money? So just be curious about it. And then the second uh, piece of advice that I would give is get educated, start learning about money, you know, like, and it could be money as well as abundance, prosperity, richness, you know, living a rich life. Like, what does that mean to you? And start following the mentors, the teachers, the people that are resonating with you and that feel like that you're in alignment with them because you'll start learning from them. Like you were just saying, Vanessa, you listen to someone like, oh, they just bought a whatever $5 million apartment. I'm like, or home. And would I ever buy that? But when you're in those kind of conversations, even though they feel very distant to you, you'll start shortening that distance. The more you educate yourself and surround yourself with that type of conversation. And Tanya, how can people find you and what resources have you got available to people? I think the best place for uh, women to start, since we're talking about getting ourselves educated, I have a free guide that anyone that's listening can download. It's called Women's Top Money Mistakes. And you can find it on Google. Just type in uh, womenstopmoneymistakes.com. And it's a free guide with the top eight mistakes that women make regarding money, you know, and how to fix them. So it's not just like pinpointing at everything you're doing wrong. It's the other way around. It's like get curious and say, oh, let me look out of those eight uh, mistakes. What am I doing right? And which ones can I make better? That would be the best place to get started. So it doesn't feel as intimidating. I also have a YouTube channel uh, where I'm posting uh, weekly videos and on tips on money mindset, on business strategies. Perfect. And I'll put all those details in the show notes. So anybody who wants to go and have a look and, and to find Tanya, you can use the links in the notes. Tanya, thank you so much for being on Women in Confidence. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you so much for talking about money mindset and for also talking about your journey to for, through you know your growing up in Spain and moving to the US and then your creative director role and now where you are today and how that even has evolved over the last sort of five six years so thank you so much for being on the show thank you Vanessa I appreciate it and thanks to everyone listening thank you thank you thank you so much for listening to Women in Confidence and I hope you enjoyed it if you did then please like it share it comment on it and if you want to sponsor it if you'd like to take part in my podcast or know somebody who would make a perfect guest then please email me on contact at vanessa-murphy.com. That's contact at vanessa-murphy.com. Until next time.